Welcome to the podcast, Inside Out. If this is your first time joining us, this is a story that you've arrived in the middle of. It's best to start at episode one. This is season two, My Life Inside a Federal Prison Camp. Season one is the truth is the first victim. And it would be best if you started season one, episode one, and worked your way through. New episodes drop every Sunday. We're so glad you're here. This is Inside Out. I'm your host, James Catledge. Welcome aboard. I want to share with you a couple of things that are unique to doing time inside a federal facility. And again, federal facilities are different than the county jail or a city jail. They're even different than detention centers, which where courthouses hold uh, pre-trial defendants un- until it's determined that they're guilty or innocent, and then they assign them a permanent destination. That's what a detention center is. But when you go to be processed into a federal facility, it is unmistakable the heaviness of the steel doors that shut behind you. I'll never forget the feeling I had as I've got my orange jumpsuit on, they've searched me, they've done the DNA swab, and I go through the first processing center and I've got a, I'm handcuffed, and I've got a guard with me that's kind of holding my elbow uh, and kind of guiding me. And then when he goes through, uh, there's a guy in a glass box that, that he's communicating with, with hand signals and sometimes with words, but it's usually they kind of know what they're doing as they're bringing an inmate through. And then this steel door is set on a motor and shuts behind you. And man, when it shuts, you feel like you're in a vault. And then the further you go back into the facility, more doors shut. So it becomes obvious that the further you get back in toward your permanent housing unit, you're vaulted in and you're part of this machinery and it's not a person that you can kind of talk your way through things with and and receive some compassion or some human kindness or whatever you you are in a machine and it dehumanizes you a bit it dehumanizes the experience between human beings that are administratively running the facility and dealing with the inmates so that it creates this inhuman barrier which god it's it's not good it cannot be psychologically healthy and that's why i get concerned about uh the the amount of time that judges and courthouses and prosecutors are requesting courthouses are are ordering and and, and administering it's just too much time uh, i'm all for violent defendants being in prison if there's been violence and you you can't control yourself in public you should be in prison. There's no doubt about that. But when you're dealing with paper crimes or drug crimes or people who really don't have it in them to harm people, don't have it in them to cause physical, uh, they're not dangerous. Those, those folks really, there's got to be alternative solutions. And I feel strong about that. So the, the, the shutting of the doors and the heaviness of these doors and the fact they're motorized just lets you know, not only are you not getting out of here, but you're in the machine now, and it's it's just a 
It's a terrible feeling. It really is. So I felt that on day one when they processed me in. And then, of course, they take you right back out to the front door and they drove me around to the camp where none of those doors exist. You don't hear that kind of stuff. But there is another symbolism of doing time in a federal camp that is common to all campers. And that is the keys. They call them the keys. And I'll never forget night one when their guards are walking. You can hear them from 50, 60 feet away because the keys and I don't know why the keys are so heavy and I don't know why they're made of the metal they're made of. And I don't know why they're so large, but they're large, they're metal and they're banging against each other. It's not like a pocket full of keys, your car keys and your house key and maybe your office key. This is large keys that you would envision putting in a cell door and twisting and, and kind of unlocking a lever. For whatever reason, these correction officers have on their waist, these keys. So every step they take, the keys are banging, banging, banging. And so all through the night, if the guards are in the housing unit, you hear the keys, you hear them walking. You can tell they're coming or they're going. And, and for many inmates, they become attuned to the keys and it's a warning that you've got a CO or correction officer nearby. And so if you're up to something, you should cut it out because you got a CO close by. Now, some of the clever, sneaky COs, and I only saw one guy do this, but he literally would put a rubber band around his keys when he would enter the housing unit so he could sneak up on you. So he could walk real fast and you not hear him coming. And of course, that catches a lot of guys off guard. That's where a lot of the cell phones get found. That's where a lot of the contraband gets discovered is you got guards. You know, it's kind of like a highway patrolman off in the woods with his radar detector where you can't see him. I've always felt that was sneaky and inappropriate. Correction officers are busy with the same type of sneakiness. So it does take a personality type to be a CO. It's the same type that's willing to hide in the woods with a radar gun to make sure you know you're seven miles over the speed limit. It's the same personality type. It's, I, I just call them annoying, okay? So this is happening. You're counted physically, they call it count. I would say it's every four hours, and on the weekends it's more frequent, I guess because escapes are more likely in the weekends when the shifts are less, less populated with correction officers. So they do, they do more count and it counts are at a specific time. You've got to be in your unit. You've got to have your, in our case, you had to have your ID out and hold it up where they could walk by and know that was you in the proper unit with your ID. And count doesn't take long. They walk fast, but they're, they're counting. Then there's a second guard that comes in right behind them front guard and, and they're counting too. And they're probably 10 paces behind. So at the end, they calibrate their count to make sure they got the same numbers and that's how they determine if anybody's missing. So if somebody goes missing from camp, it's determined during count. And as I understand it, once a day, the four o'clock count, which is in West Coast time, 7 p.m. on the East Coast, that count goes to the Bureau of Prisons in D.C. so that they have a daily count of federal inmates. Now, the other counts are for the institution to keep track of their inmates and make sure that they've got the proper amount of inventory that they think they're supposed to have. And then if somebody's missing, they can determine it quickly. But the once a day count, the four o'clock count on the West Coast is a DC count. They're counting that for DC and they have to call that in. So anyway, that's a little bit about some of the 
uniquenesses of, of doing time in the big house in a federal facility. This is James Catledge, season two of Inside Out, my life inside a federal prison camp. Welcome. I want to share with you uh, an interesting experience I had, and this this turned out to be a pattern that developed while I was inside. Um, because I found myself to be somewhat of an optimistic person inside there, not not depressed or sad or all the other common you know attributes that people can feel when they're incarcerated. Because I was optimistic and and uh, on the sunny side of things, it, it, it drew a lot of attention. A lot of people wanted to talk. A lot, of, a lot of people from all the different races wanted to talk. And so in the beginning, people would come by the cubicle and want to sit down in the alternative chair and have a conversation. And so I would say for the first three or four months, there would, there would be people lined up. I don't, want to, I don't want this to sound crazy, but there were people lined up outside the cubicle so that they wouldn't invade the other person's privacy while they were having a conversation with me. And people were talking about all sorts of things. People were talking about personal things. But, you know, some were wanting to talk about their crime. Some were talking about their childhood. Some were talking about their marriage. You know, all sorts of things. Just, just really interesting life stories. And since there's no privacy in there, and you just get the feeling you're constantly being eavesdropped on, just constantly. I, I decided to take this experience outside to the track. And so I developed a habit. I'm not a marathon runner, but I walk a lot of miles. And the track is one-third of a mile. It's dirt. It's, it's not paved or gravel or anything. It's, it's, it's literally a dirt track. But it's one-third of a mile, so it's pretty, you know, th three laps is a mile. I ended up making a decision that I wanted to do 10 miles a day on the track. It was a great way to pass the time. It's a great way to stay fit. Uh, and I did this along with my uh, weightlifting and workout routine. But the track became the place, my office. It would be the place where men would meet me and ask if they could walk. And so we could have a private conversation without people eavesdropping and discuss all sorts of things. And I ended up uh, developing really, really fruitful relationships with lots and lots of men who to this to this day, I, as, I, as I'm sharing this with you, I'm thinking of some of these amazing stories. But many of these men I'll never see again. I just never see again that it was it was unique for that time. It was unique for that moment. It was unique for that window. But it, it's such a cathartic, healthy experience to not have the normal day-to-day -day life pressures that, that all of us feel and be able just to kind of talk freely about maybe some things that have been bottled up. And so I, I became this, this person, I don't want to say counselor, uh, I'm certainly not a counselor, but I, I became a, a listening ear to lots of men who had lots to say. And, and I, I, I began to assess that most of these men had just not been heard before. They just need to be heard. And, and I found myself not needing to say much other than just being open to whatever they wanted to say. And so we walked, I mean, 10 miles a day, most of those laps were with different men. Uh, 
Sometimes I would have my regular friends and we would walk. I think about all my walks, you know, with, with Jonathan, with Steve, with David. I think about all my walk, Travis, lots of miles to Travis. Um, Greg and I tried to walk a bunch. Greg, Greg wasn't comfortable walking. He had, he had some feet issues, but, but I, I love my time with Greg. But we walked lots and lots and lots of miles with lots of men. And, you know, when you walk at 10 miles a day, I mean, you, you know, you're going to wear down some shoes. And uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're walking. And, and since it's dirt and our shoes are black or white, those are your two different types of sneakers. And I chose black because I just like the way they looked. But you, you, you got to have a full cleaning process. <laughs> Every day you got to re-clean those shoes just to uh, go again. So there ends up being kind of a side business inside where guys will take your shoes, clean them, bring them back perfect, like they're brand new. And they do that for a little commissary. So they mark something on your commissary sheet and you, you get it for them. And that's their compensation for taking care of that. And so we walk lots and lots and lots of miles and, and, and got to hear the stories of so many good men. I, 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 I don't know what it is, but I was completely transformed by those stories. It, I, I think it helped me understand how blessed my life had been that, you know, I, I had a great upbringing. I had a great mother. She, she struggled financially to raise us, but man, she did it. She did it. She, she was a single mom doing it on her own. Uh, but so many of these men had been abused and harmed and hurt. And, uh, you could see what led them to the crimes that they committed that got them there. They were just repeating generationally what had occurred before. And I think, um, sadly, I mean, that, that's what was going on. And um, I, I can tell you this, the, the walking the laps, we would have many men. I'd be, by the way, I walk fast. I'm what they call a power walker. <laughs> and people would come up to me at full speed and ask if they could walk a lap or two. And they would ask me if I would slow down. I would say, no, no, I'm not slowing down. You've got to be able to keep up. If you're going to walk, a, walk one lap with me, we'll try it that way. And then, you know, they got in that swing of it, but I walk pretty fast. I think because I still power walk, uh, I, I, do, I have a daily fitness routine. I still do. And my miles per hour, I'm like four miles an hour just walking, which is pretty fast. Some people run four miles an hour, but I'm walking four miles an hour. And uh, I, I did the calculations. I mean, I, I think it did over a thousand miles uh, on my feet at, uh, at Taft Correctional Institute. And uh, so that, that interestingly enough, when you when you are willing to be open and listen and let people talk and then, you know, every now and then contribute something back in the middle of that conversation that could be helpful, try to help sum up what they've said, repeat back what you think you've heard. They get to hear it for the first time coming back at them. And it, I think it really helps them. You know, one of the things that for me, when I would have the rare opportunity to walk alone, which really was rare. But when I did it, one thing I did, and I, I think this may help you is I went back through each phase of my life, my childhood up until my dad left at eight years of age. I just kind of tried to draw back my memories, what I could remember from there and tried to close that door. Then from the moment my dad left until all the way till my teenage years, when I went living with my mom, until I went to live with my dad, I tried to close any open doors in that stage of my life. And then from, from living with my dad all the way to going to college, any, any open doors that need to be closed there. And then 
college all the way through to my mission and from a mission all the way through to marriage, any, any open switches that needed to be closed or flipped. I mean, since there is nothing else to do, but think you're either going to think about somebody else's challenges and problems. Now you can help them. Or you're going to think about how to fix some of your own issues. And so I found great benefit in going back to these stages of my life that were emotionally significant and actually closing the door on them, you know, just, just kind of creating some closure instead of being an open switch, just kind of curing or healing or fixing. And I found, man, I found great peace from that. I think I left my incarcerated period like free, like totally free. I even many times felt on those laps like, I may be more free than the people outside. I may be more free. I feel completely liberated. Uh, my mind was not inside, you know, my mind was outside thinking about my future and my life and my children and what my life's gonna look like. And, and I just didn't feel trapped. I didn't feel incarcerated. I didn't feel restricted in any way. I, if anything, I, I was able to work through you know, unfinished business. And I felt completely liberated by it. So anyway, that's a bit about how I got to know the men and the counseling and the friendships and the mentoring. And of course, this stuff lasts. When you have these experiences with people, you, you see them throughout the day. They live there, right? They, you share meals with them. Uh, some people are good at making desserts. Some people are good at making food. And you just wouldn't believe the generosity on your birthday. I mean, I had I had my good friend make a leather wallet for me in the leather shop. I mean, Steve, Steve literally secretly in the leather shop, bought the leather, bought all the stuff to bind the leather, bought the engraving material, purchased with his limited resources, all the things necessary, then snuck around so I wouldn't see it up until my birthday. And in the morning of my birthday, as soon as I woke up, Steve delivers me this custom wallet. Now, I don't have any money to put in this wallet, but I have that wallet today. And, and my, my little ID from my prison ID went in that wallet and I kept it in my pocket and I treasure that gift. So just to give you a sense for the generosity and the care and the love, the compassion, the respect that goes on in there. You, you may have these crazy thoughts about what goes on in a federal prison, but I gotta tell you, maybe some of the more tender moments I've had in my adult life occurred there. Anyway, this is Inside Out with James Catledge. All right, so I've been at the camp at this point probably six months. So I, I know pretty much everybody there. You're certainly not friends with everybody there, but you know everybody there. Everybody knows you. It's, it's small. I, I would say there's probably 250 men there. And, you know, we're there 24 hours a day, so we all do know each other. And uh, even if we've never spoken directly to each other, we kind of know all about each other from, you know, our own friends telling us about whoever that is. And everybody's curious, you know, who's that? Who's that? Where did he come from? You know, what, you know, what city did he come from? Do we know why he's here? All this stuff. So I've got a routine, you know, <laughs> walking probably 10 miles a day, uh, three miles before breakfast, three miles after lunch, and three miles after dinner. Uh, 3.3 miles. I end up making it, trying to make it 10, somewhere between 10, 11 miles every day. So everybody sees me out there. They, they, they know, they know my routine. 
uh, and the men who want to talk to me come out and walk with me. And sometimes they'll ask during chow hall, hey, look, you mind if you got anybody you're walking with this afternoon? Do you mind if I walk with you? Sometimes, honestly, you have to say, no, I'm walking with somebody after lunch, but I could do it after dinner or let's do it tomorrow. You know, it's almost like, you know, sliding it in. But so I've got a routine now where I'll do a lap and then there's a decline, incline push-ups like railroad ties stacked up out there. So I'll do I'll do 20 decline push-ups on one lap and then the next lap do 20 incline push-ups. So we go incline, decline, incline, decline all the way around. And so, you know, by the time you're done, you've done a lot of push-ups. Uh, and this is my routine, right? This is uh, just kind of break up the monotony of walking. I stuff these railroad ties. Well, in order for me to keep up with how many laps I so keeping up with these laps, you, you, there's these smooth stones that some inmates figured out over the years to keep them near the exercise equipment. Every time you do a lap, you put a stone down. You, you don't have to keep track of your laps. You just count stones at the end. You figure you've done, you know, 600 push-ups, you know, at the end of, you know, your laps, you've, you've, you can kind of keep track of how many push-ups you've done. So I, I've got the stones going. And, and I'm noticing, like on lap three, that there's not three stones there. And I know I put three stones there. And so I'm looking around like, is somebody moving these rocks around? There's nobody in the near proximity to the railroad ties. So I just kind of put my third rock there and then walked the lap. I come back around. Sure enough, that third rock's missing again. And now I know something's up. And so I'll look around at each of the guys trying to identify, is a buddy of mine out here messing with me? Uh, or, you know, is this, is this some type of sinister playground nonsense? Well, I can't quite figure it out. Every, there's nobody near it. Nobody's looking. And I, I just, it just is weird. And so I decide to get to the other side of the track and then stop and look through. Because there's a bit, there's a few trees. There's two tennis courts, and then there's a soccer field opposite the spot where I'm doing these push-ups. So as I get around there, if they're going to move it, they can move it and think I can't see. And so I get to where I can see, and sure enough, there's an old man. He's probably one of the older guys on the yard. He's probably been in 20, 25 years, not at the camp, but he's done time at the USB, a medium, a low, and now he's at the camp. He's spent a lot of his adult life in federal prison. And this is the guy, and I see him literally pick up one of the rocks that I've got on the railroad ties and fling it, like, out of bounds, like, outside the track. And just beyond the track is the out-of-bounds post for your, your, you know, your off-property. And so he literally flings the rock out of play. And I'm thinking, what? And so I come back around, and I now know this has happened. And again, he's nowhere to be found. He's, he's, he's at least... 40 yards away from the situation. And so I put the rock back down. I, I decide I'm going to watch this. It's like a game. I get to the other side of the track. And sure enough, he's intentionally gone over. <laughs> I swear to you this happened. He throws the rock again. So now I need to confront him. He's playing a game and I need to, I need to confront him. So I have a half a lap to think about how to play chess here. And do I confront him? Do I ignore this? And I made the decision. Now this is the type of deal you got to address. You got to deal with it directly. So, I go to where he's 40 yards away from the railroad ties. And he acts like he doesn't know what's going on. I said, hey, uh, are you moving the rocks? You know, and I know he's moving. I watched him. I said, are you moving the rocks that I'm using to count with? He said, what rocks? He's literally acting like he don't know what's going on. I said, well, 
uh, I'm, I'm, and I just give him the liberty and explain with grace what I'm doing. And, and he knows what I'm doing because, I mean, the guy's done more time than anybody else in the prison. He understands how these rocks work. I learned it from one of the older guys, how to keep track of this. You get lost in thought out there and you don't want to be thinking about how many laps you've done. You just want to be able to count the rocks at the end, do some quick math and figure out what, you know, how many push-ups you've done. So I said, yeah, I'm using those to count with. And, and I just noticed you were, you came over here and actually threw the rock. And he says, oh, you're using those. You know, and he says it kind of, you know, kind of in jest, but he, it, it's passive aggressive, right? And, and so I said, yeah, I'm using them, you know, and I, again, I'm not being confrontational at all. I'm just explaining to him the situation. But I know he's playing a game. There's no doubt about that. So I go around again, and sure enough, I'm halfway around the track, and I watch this guy do it one more time. And I thought, all right, all right, I know what to do now. I need to confront the guy, and I need to be prepared to be aggressive. Uh, I don't want to be aggressive because – I'm sure this guy would just as soon fight and bring his crew in and, and uh, you know, have a gang fight just right away uh, and create a problem for me. So I don't I don't want to get into that. There's all sorts of problems if you get in a fight. You get thrown in the segregated housing unit, which is solitary confinement. They don't tell you when you're coming out. It's, there's You lose some of your good time. I mean, there's all sorts of serious consequences to fighting. But I'm not going to let this slide and I'm, I'm not going to be a mark for this guy. And I think I'm being tested. That's, that's my view of it. So I decided to go right back to him and I come at him walking as fast as I walk. I walk right to him and he, he, he's, he's got his hands kind of clenched. He thinks, you know, I'm, I'm there to fight. And I said, Hey, listen, I saw you do that again. And I, I, I want you to know, that if I've done something, and this is what I said to him, if I've done something to disrespect you, uh, I want to know about it. Uh, if, if I've done anything that's caused you distress, I want to know about it. Because that's 100% not my intention. And it's obvious to me, you're upset with me about something, and I just want to deal with it right now. And uh, he extends his hand. After thinking, he thinks for a second, like, like a long pause. Like he's, he's, I've had a half a lap to think about what I'm going to do. He's not had that kind of time. I think he just thought I would walk away and ignore it. But that's not that's not my nature. And so um, he, after a long pause, his hands are clenched. He extends his hand and said, no, no, you've, no, you've done nothing. And uh, I, I, I won't mess with the rocks. I said, hey, listen, no big deal. There's a lot of rocks out here. I'll use different rocks. If you want me to use different rocks, I'll use different rocks. It's no big deal. I'm just trying to keep track of my count. That's it. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no problem. You don't have a problem with me. And so from that day on, every time I saw the guy, he gave me a fist bump in the yard. And that's kind of a greeting out in the prison yard. And so this old codger, uh, I think, was testing me. And had I not handled it that way, I get the feeling it could have been a pattern, right? And I didn't want that. And so I got lucky. And uh, it turned out pretty good. But uh, that's the type of uncertainty. And frankly... A bit of childishness that that can exist and can occur out there, kind of random. You have to always remember where you are, and and then you got to calculate how to deal with it. And uh, I, I, you know, I got lucky in that that regard. This is James Catledge with Inside Out.